You can take your Bibles and uh, turn them with me to the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. I've appreciated what I've heard from several of you about how our journey through the book of Daniel has been of tremendous spiritual benefit and encouragement to you, and I'm really glad to, to hear that because ultimately that's the purpose of Daniel. The purpose of Daniel is not to roll out all of the, all the prophecy charts and the calculators and try to figure out who the Antichrist is and, and to determine what on CNN corresponds to what you're reading in Daniel. The purpose of Daniel is encouragement and hope. Hope. Hope for exiles. Hope for strangers in a strange land. That's the backdrop of this book. How do you deal with being in exile? How do you live between two kingdoms when your heart longs for the kingdom of God, yet you live in the kingdom of the world? How do you handle it when it seems like God's not winning, when it seems like God is not in control? How do you hold it together when it seems like your world is falling apart and the things that you have longed for and hoped for, even good things, aren't coming to pass? And so if you've come to worship this morning discouraged and dismayed and distraught and overwhelmed, Daniel chapter 10 is for you. So let's hear from God's Word together this morning. Why don't you stand with me as we prepare to hear from the Lord. We stand at Harbin's Church before the Scripture reading out of reverence for the Word of God. We recognize that this, this carries the, author, the same authority as if the Lord Jesus Christ were here in the flesh speaking words to you. We're going to start in chapter 10, and we're actually going to read on down uh, through chapter 11, verse 1, because really it's all, it's all one section here. God's Word says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. 
Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, By reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? And now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've been already thinking about and singing about uh, this morning, uh, there is warfare going on. Sometimes we don't recognize that. There's conflict in the heavenly realms. Father, I pray this morning that you would silence the enemy who might seek to distract and confuse and hinder the word of God as it goes forth. Father, silence the devil, the accuser of the brethren, who does not want Jesus to be magnified this morning. Father, help us to have ears to hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us through Daniel chapter 10 this morning, and let us walk away edified and encouraged, loving you more, trusting you more, And more ready and more equipped to share you with the world at large. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction to Daniel's final prophetic apocalyptic revelation that God gives to him. This revelation is not just contained in chapter 10. It starts in chapter 10, and it goes through the end of the book. And I remember I was reading this, and I was like, well, maybe I should try to do the whole vision, chapters 10 through 12, in one setting, one sermon. And I I read the three chapters, and I'm like, no way. That is not going to happen. And how it's broken down is is that uh, this chapter 10 is the introduction to to the vision. And so today we'll just examine the introduction. Look with me at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Let's remember that the book of Daniel began with God's people, including young Daniel, uh, being taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But now we're in chapter 10. Now Nebuchadnezzar is long dead. Babylonians have been overthrown by Persia. And the king on the throne is a man named Cyrus. So 
this is roughly 70 years later now in the book. And so that would mean that Daniel now, he's not a teenager anymore. He's well into his 80s. text says it's the third year of Cyrus. Now this would have been a very significant time for the Jews because we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that in the first year of Cyrus, the Lord stirred up Cyrus so that he made this proclamation. The Lord has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So folks, this is it. The exile is finally over. The Jews are allowed to go home. God's word has been fulfilled. Uh, There's been a release from captivity. They've experienced an, an exodus. Uh, The people could return to the promised land. They could rebuild the temple. And so as Daniel chapter 10 opens, we are two years now into that exodus. Verse 1 again says, A word was revealed to Daniel, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. The heart of this revelation, this final vision, revolves around a great conflict. We're going to see that as the vision unfolds. But first, Daniel gives us the occasion of this vision. Verse 2, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Daniel's heart is greatly burdened and troubled, as, and he's wrestling with the Lord in prayer. He's in a deep state of ongoing mourning, and he's been doing this now for three weeks. Now, you would think that Daniel should be happy because the thing that he has longed for and desired for and prayed for all of these years has finally happened, right? The captivity is over, and yet Daniel is in mourning. What's more striking is that in verse 4, we learn that it's the 24th day of the first month. That's not January 24th. We're looking at a Hebrew calendar here. It's the month of Nisan, and it's the time of the Jewish Passover, which is a celebration of God's deliverance, of the great exodus from captivity, from Egyptian slavery. And the Passover served as a reminder of God's promise that that He would make the Hebrews into a great nation, and He would settle them in the promised land. And so, you would think, again, if there were any time for Daniel to throw a party, this would be it. It's Passover time, and it's the time of King Cyrus, who has, through his decree, initiated another exodus where God's people would be delivered from bondage. But Daniel is in mourning. He is deeply concerned for his people. The angel that God sends in this chapter says that I have come, Daniel, in answer to your prayers to make you understand what's going to happen to your people. And in chapter 11, the angel shares with Daniel the future of his people. And in chapter 12, the angel concludes his message and says to Daniel, at that time, your people will be delivered. I think that's the key to understanding what's going on with Daniel here. He longs for the deliverance of his people, which means that at the beginning of Daniel chapter 10, Daniel does not see Cyrus's decree as ultimately delivering the people of God. In fact, 
After years of Daniel praying for and longing for an end to this exile, when it finally does happen, it's really anticlimactic. We know from the book of Ezra that only a handful of Jews actually went back to the promised land. We also know that even that two years after Cyrus's decree, the temple in Jerusalem still lay in ruins. We know that the handful that had returned to rebuild the temple were facing serious, violent opposition, and there were, there were those trying to influence the Persian ruler to discourage and even block the rebuilding. And all this news surely would have filtered back to Daniel, back in Babylon, as he served the king. And can you imagine how heartbroken Daniel must have been? What's there to celebrate? I mean, what, what kind of exodus is this? Daniel knows the prophecies in the Scriptures. He knows the prophecies predicting a triumphant return from exile. Promises that, point to, that seem to point to a golden age of peace and prosperity and power for God's people. Daniel doesn't see any of that happening. And so he is desperately seeking the face of God through prayer and fasting. He's on a, he's on a partial fast here. He's just, he's just taking in the minimum of, of what, what it would take to keep his body going. Prayer, fasting, tears, discouragement. He's grasping for an answer. He's seeking understanding about what's going on with his people. He must be thinking, surely this can't be all. Surely there's, there's more going on than, than meets the eye, isn't there? And God's answer to Daniel's prayer is, yes. And God gives him a revelation that will extend to the end of the book. But here, in this introduction, God begins to encourage and help Daniel in at least four ways. And, and the first way God helps discourage spiritual exiles is by giving us a glimpse of glory. A glimpse of glory. Starting in verse 4, Daniel sees this amazing figure. And there's a lot of debate on who this person is. And I probably spent way more time than I should have just focused on that one section of Daniel 10 as I was doing sermon prep, trying to unravel all of this myself. And commentators are all over the map here. There's no unanimity. And what's interesting is that the description that Daniel gives us of this man has parallels in the book of Ezekiel, which have to do with God on his chariot. And there are parallels between this and the book of Revelation, that have to do with the risen and glorified Jesus. So look, at, look, look with me at uh, verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the river Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen. Now linen was associated with the garments of the Old Testament priests who were mediators between God and, and men. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 13, as John sees this vision of the risen Christ, he says John was clothed with a long robe. No doubt that robe was linen. Verse 5 says this man wore a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. This reflects royalty, kingliness. Revelation 1.13 describes Jesus wearing a golden sash. Verse 6 says this man's body was like beryl or jasper. This speaks of strength 
and power and royalty and resembles the chariot that God rides in Ezekiel 1. And Revelation 4 describes one sitting on his throne, and this one on the throne has the appearance of Jasper. Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 says this man's face is like the appearance of lightning. When you read in the Bible and you, 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 you come across lightning, you, when you think lightning, think theophany. Theophany is, is an appearance of God. Lightning speaks of absolute power. It speaks of God showing up like Mount Sinai in Exodus or like the throne room in heaven in Revelation 4. And of course, in Revelation 1, John describes Jesus' face as shining like the sun in full strength. Going back to Daniel 10, Daniel says of this man that his eyes were like flaming torches. That speaks of judgment and wrath. The eyes are, are burning and they are penetrating and they even see into the hearts of men. And three times in Revelation, Jesus, it mentions Jesus having eyes like fire. Daniel then says this, this man's arms and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze. That speaks of strength instability, one who cannot be moved. In Revelation 1.15, John says, Christ's feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And finally, Daniel says that the sound of his words was like the sound of a, of a multitude. There, there's a, it's just a tremendous, overwhelming noise that, that, that is coming upon Daniel. And when, John's, when Jesus uh, spoke to John on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation. John says that his voice was like the roar of many waters. When, when God shows up, it's not quiet. And the idea here is the overwhelming power of God's Word. Now again, there is debate here. Who, who is this figure that Daniel sees? Some, some people think this man uh, that Daniel encounters by the riverside is, a, is an angel. Some, some will even push it a little further and say it's Gabriel, because we see Gabriel in chapter 9. And if you want to go there, I'm totally good with that, because you're in good company with many people. Many people think that. But I believe that Daniel has encountered something here greater than an angel, that Daniel is beholding the glory of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. But however you interpret this, it should ultimately point us all in the same direction, right? If it, if it is an angel, it is an angel who is reflecting the glory of his master. If it's the Lord, it is the Lord who is showing a degree of his glory to Daniel, as he did with the Apostle John in Revelation. It has to be a, just a degree of his glory because God says elsewhere in the Scripture, no man can see me and live. And isn't it amazing when you consider the effect that even a sliver of God's glory has on these mere mortals? Look at verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision... For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So these, these men are with Daniel. Maybe they're at the riverside for a prayer meeting. I don't know. They're all there together, and they don't see this divine visitor, but they feel his presence, and they are scared out of their minds. 
and they want to get out of there as quickly as possible. And look at the impact this person has on Daniel. Verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. And no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Think about this. This is Daniel. A holy man. A man who has lived for God and walked with God for over 70 years who has seen many miracles. And let's be honest, Daniel has seen some pretty freaky stuff, hasn't he? Haven't you been freaked out by some of the stuff we've seen with him in Daniel so far? This was the man who who was tossed into the lion's den in chapter 6. This was the man who, who saw those horrifying mutant beasts come out of the sea in chapter 7. But there's been nothing in Daniel's life that has ever affected him and overwhelmed him in this way. Verse 9, it just keeps going. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. As this majestic, glorious person is speaking, the power in his voice is so unbelievable that Daniel cannot handle it. He does not have the strength to handle even a portion of God's glory. And he is bit by bit being overwhelmed. He drops to his hands and knees. He falls to the ground. And he is out cold. Much like John in Revelation 1 when he sees the glorified Christ. Now what's the point of this? God never does anything random. God doesn't just do things to try to impress people with special effects. There's always a reason why God does what he does. Consider what message this incident is sending to Daniel. Consider what this vision would mean for Daniel's readers a few generations later who would be encountering ferocious persecution and opposition and affliction. Remember how Daniel describes this final vision. Back up in verse 1, he says, A word was revealed to Daniel, and it was a great conflict. This whole final message, from chapter 10 to the end of the book, is a word about conflict. It's a word about warfare. And the Lord is about to reveal to Daniel many details about this conflict. Details about the enemies of God's people and the opposition they will face. Details that will be unsettling and even terrifying. And so, before any of that is revealed, God appears to Daniel as a glorious, mighty, divine warrior. All sovereign. All-powerful, unshakable, none of God's enemies can escape his penetrating gaze, the eyes of fire. None are outside of his sovereign, kingly rule. None have the strength to resist the power of of his overwhelming word. And even God's choicest servants are overwhelmed in his presence. Here, friends, Daniel sees like never before the terrifying might of his God. And friends, may I suggest to you that this is a vision of God that is sorely lacking in our churches today. Oh, how we have trivialized and reduced God. 
We have no fear of God because we have made God into an image that is comfortable to us. One author writes that what we see in Daniel's vision is a very different depiction of God from what we see in the culture around us. We live in a culture that is on friendly terms with their God, a mild-mannered deity who is far too mellow and kindly to send anyone to hell. We have transformed God into a cosmic Mr. Nice Guy eager to welcome all comers to his neighborhood. Indeed, we have turned God into a sort of celestial Santa Claus, a jolly old man in the sky who's like a doting grandfather. He never judges. He never disciplines. He turns a blind eye to sin. He's just a big softy. We have sissified God, and we have made him safe. And yet, in the end, such a God will disappoint because this world is not soft. And this world is not safe. Life is difficult. Indeed, life is a great cosmic conflict between good and evil. And it rages. It rages from heaven to earth and everywhere in between. And the evil out there is very dark. And very scary. And very powerful. It's ruthless and it's merciless. And we don't have the strength to fight it on our own. And we, in taming God, have cut ourselves off from a tremendous source of encouragement and hope. Friends, we don't need a tame God. We need a God of war. We don't need a God who will spoil us. We need a God, we need a hero, a king who will fight for us and who will crush the enemy. And we need a God who we know has the power to win. God doesn't reveal himself to Daniel in this way simply to crush him, but to encourage him. So that as Daniel receives this revelation in chapter 10 and chapter 11 about the dark forces and the wicked powers that will come against him and his people, he will not be overwhelmed by the fear of them because he's already been overwhelmed by the fear of God. That's what we need. Oh God, give us a new sense of holy, reverent fear for you. Oh God, I think of that, I think of that psalm that says, Blessed is, is he who fears the Lord, his heart is firm, and he's not afraid. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? The one who fears God is fearless. And now, after Daniel has been confronted with the awesome might and terror of God, now Daniel will be now Daniel will be comforted by God. Now God brings Daniel a word of assurance. In verse 9, everything goes black. If you're watching, you know, if this is a movie, this is how the movie in my mind plays. This is just going, and Daniel's confronted by this man, and everything is just getting blurry, and Daniel just completely passes out. 
He's out cold. And we don't know if he's out for one minute or for one hour. But some time passes between verse 9 and verse 10, and now the scene changes. The man dressed in linen is gone, and another being appears. It's an angel sent by God to answer Daniel's prayer. Now, of course, we know that that angels, too, can have a scary and intimidating effect on mortals. But after the previous verses, the interactions between Daniel and this newcomer seem almost mundane. Almost, but not quite, because he still is an angel after all. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He administers a little angelic first aid to Daniel. In fact, we'll see him do this several times in the chapter as the old prophet is just so overwhelmed and reeling in the aftermath of what just happened to him. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 1 that says, Are they not, are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do you know that angels serve you? We don't, we don't know exactly how, but, but here we see this angel is somehow able to with a touch, give Daniel physical strength. Daniel's not lying down anymore, but he's not standing up. He's still on his hands and knees. I'm telling you guys, I really think Daniel saw God. I know Daniel is an old man, but even this angel seems to be having a hard time getting Daniel up. But what comes next is something way better than a touch from an angel. And it's these glorious words in verse 11. And he said to me, O Daniel... Man greatly loved. Can I, can I just say that this word to Daniel of God's love for him would not have meant as much had it not been for the terrifying vision of God that Daniel saw earlier. Think about it. The angel is not saying, Oh, Daniel, Santa Claus loves you. He didn't say the God who winks at your sin and doesn't judge anybody loves you. He's not saying that that big, soft granddaddy in the sky loves you. Big, stinking deal about that. Who would be moved by that? Who cares about that? No. Instead, Daniel, the God that you saw by the riverside, the warrior God, the one with the flaming eyes, The face like lightning, that divine being whose very presence sent your friends running, that one whose very voice overwhelmed you and laid you low. Yeah, Daniel, that God loves you. You're not just loved. You are a man greatly loved. God cherishes you. Some translations say esteems you. He has affection for you. He is on your side, and He is for you. Now, again, if God is some weak, sissified construct of our own imagination, who cares if He's for me? He can't do anything for me. That that doesn't give me any courage at all. Verse 11, And when He had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. It's the word to Daniel of God's love for him that enables Daniel to rally his strength and stand up. Yes, he's trembling, but he's on his feet. This great, mighty, majestic God loves him. 
How encouraging that must have been for Daniel. The divine warrior is not an enemy, but an ally. What glorious news! Christian brother, Christian sister, I don't know what you're going through this morning. Maybe you're like Daniel in the beginning of this chapter. You are down. You are discouraged. You're wondering, what in the world is God doing? What's going on? Where is God? I, I, I don't understand what's happening. You're in the depths of depression and despair. Friend, the most important, basic, fundamental thing you need to know is, that, is what God said to Daniel. He says it to you. You are greatly loved. You say, well, well, I'm not Daniel. Daniel was a prophet. I'm a mess. I struggle with sin. I'm prideful. I covet. I battle against lust. I yell at my kids. I did it on the way to church this morning. You, you just don't know how bad I am. No, I, well, I have an idea, I guess, but I, I don't know. <laughs> but what I do know is that if you are in Christ, if you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then by His grace the filthy rags of your sin have been replaced by the beautiful, spotless, pure, white robes of Jesus Christ. And He does not treat you or see you according to your sins, but according to the righteousness of Christ. And He says to you, you are greatly loved. The divine, mighty warrior is for you and not against you. Verse 12. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Daniel had been mourning and fasting and seeking God through prayer for three weeks, and it must have felt like his prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling. Some of you know what that feels like. But the angel assures Daniel that the prayers of his people are heard. They are always heard, even if obvious answers do not come as quickly as we would like. And that leads to my third observation here, that God gives Daniel a revelation of warfare. A revelation of warfare. If Daniel's prayers were heard the moment he started praying, and if the angel was dispatched to Daniel immediately then why has it taken three weeks for the angel to come? Is it a three-week trip from heaven to earth? Verse 13 tells you why. The angel says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Now that is fascinating. This cannot be a human prince. Because a human couldn't withstand an angel for three milliseconds. Forget about three weeks. Prince of Persia is obviously an evil spiritual power, an evil angel, a demon who exercises influence in the realm of Persia. And three weeks prior, this angel was sent to come to Daniel, but this evil spirit did not want the angel to get to Daniel. And he fought against him. And evidently, this prince of Persia is pretty strong, because he detains this angel for 21 days, three weeks, the exact amount of time that Daniel had been in mourning and praying. Verse 13, 
the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So this angel gets assistance from Michael, who is known elsewhere in the scriptures as the archangel. A chief of the angels. He seems to have a special responsibility over Israel. Michael now enters the ring to fight off the prince of Persia, freeing up the other angel to continue on his journey to Daniel. Verse 13 mentions the kings of Persia. I'm going to assume that those are other demonic beings that exercise influence in Persia. Perhaps they all gang up on this angel. You ask me, how do angels fight? I have no idea. How do, how do spirit beings, non-corporeal beings, fight with one another? And how do they do it for three weeks? And so now this revelation, this revelation opens up a whole new perspective for Daniel concerning the enormous difficulties and challenges facing God's people who are trying to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. It's not just human adversaries and opponents. Instead... Daniel and his people are up against even more powerful, more dangerous, invisible, wicked adversaries in the heavenly realms. There are dark, evil forces in the halls of power in Persia that are trying to pull the strings behind the scenes. But now the conspiracy is unmasked in all of its demonic horror, and this new revelation sends Daniel really... Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Daniel just cannot speak after this. And the old prophet begins to lose strength again. And the angel has to, poor old Daniel here. He's, he's well into his 80s here. And think about what he's, he's, this old man is dealing with. So now the angel has to give him another shot. Another little bit of, of spiritual first aid, verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh, man greatly loved. He reminds him of God's love again. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. See, that's the point of all this. This revelation, this vision is to instill courage and, and strength and peace to Daniel and to future readers. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. All right, so the fight against the prince of Persia is not over. But the angel warns about another dark spiritual power stirring in the West. It's the prince of Greece, which is the next world power on the scene after Persia. And we're going to see in chapter 11 that it's from Greece that even greater trouble and opposition and persecution will be unleashed on God's people. And so we are learning with Daniel that there is more going on in the universe than meets the eye. Heaven and earth are connected. The spirit world influences the physical world. And guess what? It actually works the other way around as well. When we pray, things happen... In the spiritual realm, Daniel's prayer brought him into the heavenly conflict and it drew these invisible powers into combat. Friends, 
Who knows what battles and activities in the heavenly realms are set in motion when you pray? Are you praying? I hope you pray. So many Christians don't pray. I don't, I don't get that. I mean, I understand the struggle to pray. I struggle just like everybody else. But just to have prayer completely off the radar screen is odd in light of the revelation that we have received in the Scriptures. Many Christians don't pray. Or their prayers are small. God, help me do well on this exam. God, help me find my car keys. That's when I prayed a lot. There's nothing wrong with prayers like that, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. I don't feel guilty for prayers like that. But are you praying prayers that reverberate throughout the heavenly realms? Are you, through prayer, waging war against the devil who seeks to destroy Harbin's Community Baptist Church and seeks to destroy your home and your family and your marriage? Now, before you raise an eyebrow at this talk of your involvement in the great cosmic conflict of good versus evil, hear a higher authority than Deemer. God says, through Paul, in Ephesians 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, Ephesians 6 is written not to super-Christians, but to ordinary Christians like you and Deemer Webb. There are dark, demonic forces targeting you, and Baptist churches don't like to talk about it. We've let other denominations try to have a corner on this kind of reality, and some of them really get bizarre and crazy with it. We need our vision, our understanding of the spirit realm to be guided by the scriptures. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about there's two equal, equally uh, erroneous and opposite errors that we make concerning the demonic realm. One is to, to, to blow it up way beyond, out of proportion, and we see a, a demon behind every bush. We, you know, we... we, we Spill our coffee. Oh, something did that. Yeah, you're clumsy. That's what did that. Come on. Your computer's having trouble. Well, you know, some of you are thinking, yeah, no, my computer is possessed. But (laughs) (laughs) But we blow it out of proportion and we get all tangled up in fear, sometimes superstition. Passages like Daniel 10 and other scriptures help us to, to tone that down and to not be fearful. But then the opposite error, and I'm afraid many people in, in churches like ours do the exact opposite. And we, and, and, and we completely shrink that, that outside world almost to a point where it doesn't even exist. Maybe some of you do that. Maybe some of you do that as an as a overcorrection to some of the other errors. And So let's be guided and by the scriptures on these things. And that, let's not be afraid to talk about them because the scriptures talk about them. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our ultimate enemy is something 
altogether different. Don't go through life treating your spouse or your boss or your kids or people in the church as your enemy, ultimately. When there is a disruption in relationships, yes, there is sin involved. And we are responsible for that. But know that there are spiritual forces seeking to take advantage of the situation to bring about further destruction. That's why you've got scriptures like Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Your anger, your undealt with anger, is a spiritual warfare issue and it gives a foothold to Satan. When you, when you get into a fight with your wife or kids or parents and anger is flaring up, that's spiritual warfare. And prayer is one of the main weapons of this warfare. Are you praying? Are you pleading with God that He would protect your marriage so that it would glorify Christ in the world? Your marriage is a spiritual warfare issue. When you share the gospel with lost friends or family or strangers and they don't believe, do you get angry with them? Or do you remember 2 Corinthians 4.4 that says Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of Christ? It's a spiritual battle. And so then do you, do you plead with God for their souls in prayer? When, when there is strife and conflict in the church, do you just throw up your hands and get mad at everyone and say, forget the church, I'm done with that? Or do you remember 1 Peter 5.8, which warns the churches that the devil is a roaring lion seeking people to devour? Or 2 Corinthians 2.11, which links a lack of forgiveness in the church with the schemes of Satan? And do you, in response... Pray for love and unity in the church. Paul in in Ephesians, after unmasking our true enemy, the true enemy that we wrestle against, he says right after that, that we need to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Is that part of your lifestyle? If not, you're a sitting duck in spiritual warfare. And possibly those around you are as well who need your prayers. Why can a church get great participation with practically anything, but when it comes to a prayer meeting, no one's to be found? Hardly anyone is to be found. Next week, we'll be having another men's prayer meeting. And I know it's the first weekend of the NFL. And I wonder who will come and do battle with us against the forces of darkness through prayer. Laying hold of God, laying hold of His promises, pleading with God for the things that matter most. And by the way, I don't, I don't, I don't condemn anyone who doesn't show up for our men's prayer times. There are many legitimate reasons one might not join us, and I'm fine with that. I don't sit around thinking, oh, so-and-so's not here. They they must be in rebellion against God. I'm not doing that. But as a pastor, 
concerned for the sheep, concerned for the flock, I can't help but wonder if there are those who do not come because they do not regard prayer as a priority and they do not believe it's worthwhile. Let that not be you. Charles Spurgeon said, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a grace-o-meter, he says. And from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Elsewhere, Spurgeon said, The power of prayer can never be overrated. They who cannot serve God by preaching need not regret. If a man can but pray, he can do anything. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth in his disposal. Do you think about prayer that way? And realize that such prayers have an impact not because of you. (laughs) You are nothing. They have an impact because of the one that you're praying to. As we sang in that last hymn before the sermon, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. And so Paul writes about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the first thing he says before he says anything else. God wanted Daniel, and he wants us to be aware of the warfare but also to be encouraged that as we wage war, God himself, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the heavenly armies, fights with us and for us. And for that reason, we have, finally, a guarantee of victory. In the face of this particularly frightening revelation about the demonic world, God shows us something that is very encouraging. And I wonder if you noticed it. In verse 21, the angel says to Daniel, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. (laughs) There's a heavenly book, and it's the book of truth. And in chapter 11, the angel is going to share some things with Daniel out of this book about this great conflict and how God's going to triumph over the forces of darkness. Did you get that? The plan is already mapped out. It's already inscribed in this book. The outcome has been ordained. Now, remember the theme in the book of Daniel. We've mentioned this several times. The theme of the book of Daniel, in a nutshell, is despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. In practically every chapter of Daniel, we have discovered that every wicked kingdom that comes to power comes to power because God ordains it. And every kingdom falls because God deems it time. And God has even planned the exact order of the kingdoms to come. Babylon first, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. God ordains all that. And notice here in chapter 10 that the prince of Persia is the main foe at this time, the main foe of God's people. But notice who will be the next big bad demon on the scene, the prince of Greece. Now that follows the preordained pattern of empires. You catching the point here? Not only is the rise and fall of human powers in the sovereign hand and control of God, 
but also the rise and fall of the demonic powers as well. The demonic powers that are behind them. This demon who has authority in Persia only has authority because God says so. And when God says to Persia, your time is up, the prince of Persia can't do anything about it. It's over. It's it's been inscribed in the book of truth. Soon Persia will fall. And and that demon's influence will be swept aside. And then God's going to say to the prince of Greece, okay, your turn. You're my next lackey to serve my purposes in the world. Kings rise. Kings fall, and so do demonic princes. But God's rule and God's kingdom endures forever. Isn't that good news? You see, it's not just that God is losing, but he's going to make a dramatic comeback in the final round. God isn't just going to win in the end. He's winning now. Because our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases, now and forever. Therefore, Your life is not spinning out of control. Your circumstances are not random events. You're not at the mercy of the satanic powers in the heavenly realms that want to destroy you. Instead, you and your circumstances are ultimately in the hands of a God who greatly loves you. And his message to you is the same as his message to Daniel. Do not fear. Take heart. Have courage. God is here. God's on the scene. The divine warrior who rules the cosmos is fighting this great conflict on your behalf. Now, ultimately, we know this to a greater degree than Daniel. You and I are more blessed than Daniel. We have received even greater revelation. We know that the victory in this great conflict ultimately doesn't happen through our efforts, but because of the efforts of another. And we know that the decisive blow against the forces of hell has already happened, securing the victory. The prophet Isaiah depicts a world where evil seems to be winning the day. And then in Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 15, it says this. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The divine warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ, arms himself for battle and he enters the fray. He takes on human flesh and comes to earth and he does battle against Satan and his dark hordes for you. And the forces of hell did their worst to Jesus. They opposed him. They tempted him. Satan entered into Judas to betray him to death. But the death sentence that Jesus received turned out in the end actually to be the crushing blow against Satan. And he wins the battle through the sacrifice of his own life. On the cross, judgment for sin that was meant for you and for me is instead poured out on Christ as our substitute. His blood washes away our sins. And in doing so, the main weapon Satan has, namely his accusations against you, which condemn you as guilty and hellbound, that main weapon he has is rendered powerless. This is what the Apostle Paul was getting at in Colossians 2 when he wrote that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And because of that, the scriptures say to you in Romans 8, If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Chapter 10 is just an introduction to Daniel's vision. But Daniel knows now that there is something going on much more than meets the eye. Seventy years in Babylon and an anticlimactic return to Jerusalem is not the end-all, be-all of the story. But how does that all play out? What does that look like? How will that end? Daniel's about to find out. That's where we're headed starting next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy and inspired word. Help us to draw strength from it. Help us to draw instruction from it. Use your word to awaken faith in us. And help us to do battle against the powers and principalities, not in the strength of our flesh, but in the strength of the Lord, the divine warrior. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.